You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. All right, we're underway. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Glenn. It's nice to see you again. It's very good to see you, too. Uh, this is indeed Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, also at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. I'm with Josh Cohen. Uh, Josh is the editor and publisher of the Boston Review, which is a very important organ. Your circulation is what, Josh? Well, you know, it depends how you count. I I count one, two, a thousand. And so then our circulation is really, no, (laughs) print circulation, you know, I I don't, honestly, I didn't even know what it is because we're basically publishing more like books now, but, uh, Online, uh, we've got, you know, we had about 5 million people show up last year. And so we're, 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 we've got, we're, we're doing better than ever on circulation. That's fantastic. And yeah. you've been doing it for decades and, uh, and it's making 30 years, Glenn. This is, this is, this is my 30th year. I started in the fall of, uh, 1991 with the ambition of, uh, editing a left center of gravity magazine of ideas, left center of gravity, like it was not going to be narrow and we're going to, you know, open up to a wider range of, uh, you know, ideological and intellectual positions, but clearly left center of gravity. And, and this is where you and I always come together, um, you know, trying to avoid, uh, you know, trying to have a little bit more reason and a little less screech. Uh, in the style of uh, presentation and argument, so an expression of an idea of public reason that that was the idea and uh the first issue was uh yeah september nineteen ninety one so been going for a long time and uh you have graced our pages many times uh it's been my honor to do so yeah, I think you guys are are really making a difference over there. Uh, Josh is a political philosopher. He's also, uh, he teaches at the UC Berkeley Law School and he is a professor at Apple University. Apple University, yeah. So, uh, good to have you. You were a student of John Rawls, were you not? I was. I came to graduate school in philosophy at Harvard in September 1973. Um, wow. Some number of years ago. September a long time ago, John. It was a long time ago, September 1973. And uh, Rawls had just published a theory of justice two years earlier. So he was now, you know, uh, uh, you know, looming very large, not only in the Harvard philosophy department or in philosophy, but looming large in a much wider uh, space, and I had the privilege of um, uh, taking courses from him, of his being my dissertation uh, advisor, of having I was a teaching assistant for him, and then um, uh, we became friends. I mean, after I uh, went and was teaching down the block uh, at MIT, we used to talk a lot and get together pretty often, and. Um, one of the uh, he um, came to my fiftieth birthday party. Uh, he was in a wheelchair at the time, and I, you know, he had suffered several strokes, and it was a very wonderful and memorable uh, 
uh, gesture on his part. He was an extraordinary person. Did you ever meet uh, him? I never met John Rawls. I I started graduate school in 1972 at MIT. And I remember the excitement, the excitement about a theory of justice, even in the economics department at MIT, Hmm. was palpable. Uh, because this was a foundational text I was being told. Uh, I didn't even attempt to read a theory of justice until many years later. Yeah. But, uh, but it it was having a huge impact, but no, I never had the pleasure. Bob Nozick, I knew, I knew pretty well, but uh, John Rawls, I'd never met. Yeah. Bob Nozick was another, I didn't take any courses with Bob Nozick, but he was also on my uh, dissertation committee and advised my second year paper, which was critical of anarchy, state, and utopia. So I had a chance to engage with uh, him. Some very different, very di- completely different people. And here's one measure of their difference. If you go down the list of very, um, you know, significant moral and political philosophers over the in the United States over the past, I don't know, fifty years. Uh, Rawls was the advisor of lots and lots of them. Um, uh, Chris Korsgaard, wonderful moral philosopher in the Harvard philosophy department, uh, superb thinker, Kantian, and Barbara Herman at UCLA, or Liz Anderson. Liz Anderson, who's at University of Michigan. Very formidable. Very formidable. And Liz when Anderson. Liz got a chair at in Ann Arbor, you get to name the chair yourself. She is the John Rawls professor. I see. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Alan Gibbard, also at the University of Michigan. So, you know, Gibbard-Satterthwaite theorem. That, uh, I Alan know Gibbard, it. Yeah, I know you do. Um, so uh, Bob Nozick did not have many uh, students for a variety of reasons, but uh, Jack Rawls was um, a person of extraordinary decency uh, generosity and 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 i think genuine um i i a genuine humility and i think it was genuine humility because he was so um he felt so much the weight of the subject that he was writing about which he thought was so much larger and greater than himself uh that he didn't focus on himself. He focused on the uh, the topic. You know, when I was a first year PhD student, it, it, lots of people have stories like this with uh, Rawls. I was a first year PhD student, and I I was taking a course with him. It was the uh, spring semester, and uh, it was a course on Kant's moral philosophy. And uh, the seminar met and I was home and I get a call and, you know, it's a call from John Rawls. You know, I, I don't remember. I mean, maybe I had already smoked some weed or something like that. I'm, you know, 22 years old and, and it's John, John Rawls. And uh, he wanted to know how I thought the seminar had got. Was it OK? That was a kind of John Rawls question. He says, was it OK? And, you know, one um interpretation of the reason for the call, you know, you could imagine somebody thinking, oh, here's a, your teacher and he wants to make you feel good and validate you or something like that. And I don't think Rawls was into validation, so to speak. I think, it, uh, um, and it, it wasn't that he particularly valued my opinion as distinct from anybody, but I was in the class and I think he really wanted to know, like, was it 
did the class go okay? Because he thought the stuff that I'm teaching, this is Kant's moral philosophy, that's important. And I want to be sure that uh, it's getting across to getting across to people. You know, Michael Sandel tells a story, and I'm, I'm not going to get the details exactly right, but um, he had started at teaching at Harvard. This is probably around 1983 or something like that, 82, 83. And he had written Liberalism in the Limits of Justice, which was critical of the theory of justice. And uh, Rawls calls him out of the blue. He's not expecting a call. He gets a call. This is in the old days. He had a desk phone on his desk, and uh, Rawls calls him. Um, and he says, uh, this is how Michael tells the story. He says, it's, this is, uh, you know, John Rawls. That's R-A-W-L. <laughs> and Michael right, we says, don't know. <laughs> yeah, Michael says, this is like getting a call. And on the other line, the person says, this is God. That's G-O-D. <laughs> um, but it was genuine. I mean, lots of people have these stories about him. He just, he regarded a v- very wide range of people as co-inquirers, co-investigators in this space of moral thought and political morality. and So really, I, a, a person of a kind of, I don't know, fineness of character that really it was a privilege to, privilege to know him. We're talking about John Rawls here because this year, 2021, uh, is the 50th anniversary year of the publication of A Theory of Justice. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you guys going to be marking that, you students and yeah. uh, devotees? Yeah, well, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication and the 100th anniversary of his birth. Um, so it's oh. a kind of double... Uh, um, we, uh, there are lots of, actually, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting on the, um, so I'm with my colleague, Veronique Munoz Darde, we're running the Berkeley workshop in the fall focused on, uh, roles and we'll be inviting some people to come and participate. Uh, Paul Weithman, who's, a, who was a student of Rawls's, who is a wonderful political philosopher, at Notre Dame is has a, a convening a, a conference at Notre Dame in the fall on Rawls's work. Um, uh, there were a very large number of um, you know, memorial pieces because it, as much because of the hundredth anniversary of birth as a fiftieth anniversary of theory of justice. Other places in the world, like in Germany, for example, a whole bunch of pub, you know, people publishing. So there was almost no notice uh, uh, in the United States. Um, we did at Boston Review. We've had some wonderful pieces about Rawls. Um, one or, uh, early last year from Sam Scheffler, a great philosopher at NYU, and another by Katrina Forrester, whose book, uh, you know, In the Shadow of Justice is a uh, a book about the evolution of Rawls is a very important book on the evolution of Rawls's ideas and their subsequent impact on the field of uh, political philosophy. So we, um, uh, 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 circulated a kind of, you know, Boston review Rawls reading list, by, which by the way, included, uh, a letter that, uh, Rawls had written to Owen Fiss in the early 1980s. And in this letter, which Fiss, uh, sent to us, 
uh, Rawls re- reported on a conversation that he had had in the early 1960s with Harry Calvin, very distinguished University of Chicago uh, law professor, uh, author of the book, A Worthy Tradition on the Free Speech Tradition in the United States, which is an amazing book. Uh, and it was a book about why baseball is, it, it was a, a letter about recording a conversation with Calvin about why baseball is the best sport. Um, and there are a whole I'm series. I'm interested in that, actually. What's the political philosophy take on baseball? It was had nothing to do with it as political philosophy. It had to oh. do with it as uh, uh, the qualities of a certain kind of symmetry and elegance and, and a cooperative aspect to it. So every, the whole, everybody in different parts of the field is in play at the same time. It's not just that there's one place where the action is. Anyway, there are a bunch of features, but it was a sort of, it's aesthetics. It's aesthetics, not, uh, not theory of justice stuff. It's, it's not, uh, it's not theory of justice stuff. So we did. Yeah. No, I was going to ask you what about your dissertation? You say you wrote under Rawls. Yeah, Um, it was a series. I ended up writing a series of essays on social contract theory, one of which was focused principally on Hobbes and uh, critical of the Hobbesian tradition and social contract theory, one of which was a piece on Nozick and uh, Nozick's conception of, uh, in the case of Nozick, it was more on the theory of property uh, in Nozick. And then there was another piece which was on uh, uh, Rawls and ideas about primary goods and some stuff about the ways in which uh, issues about uh, work uh, didn't figure in uh, Rawls's account of uh, justice in ways that they maybe could have and should have. Um, So, uh, but it was generically, it was on uh, issues about uh, uh, social contract theory. Okay. So this is an important book. Uh, a lot of people are going to be wondering why. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you explain why a theory of justice is a is a really historic intellectual achievement that'll be read two hundred years from now? Um. Uh, well, I can try, and you can judge whether I'm successful or not. Um, okay. And I, I, not, think, I want people to know I'm not pretending to be a political philosopher no, here, no, no. but Josh and I have been friends for a very long time. Yeah. And I and know this is right at his heart. This is the core of the man. So yeah. I want to give him a chance to express yeah. himself. Um, and just it, as, as preface, I should say, I do think it'll continue to be read for a very long time. And I don't think that's, it's hard to think of, I mean, you know, in contrast, and I don't mean this as an invidious contrast. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ronald uh, Dworkin was a brilliant legal and political thinker and incredibly influential. Um, but I don't think Dworkin and wrote a vast amount and it's terrific in all sorts of ways, but I don't think people are going to be reading uh, Dworkin in, you know, not in the way that they'll be reading Rawls in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. Uh, So there's something unusual about it. I mean, one way to think about it, Glenn, is um, to, so here's one angle. Uh, There are a few others that we can explore, but here's one angle. If you 
think just sort of stylizing some, you know, put yourself in you know, the 1950s as John Rawls is writing this book or the 60s, or it could be the 30s or 40s and in sometime in the 20th century. And you think, what are the large options, so to speak, in political philosophy, large directions of thought? And I don't think it's stylizing too much to say there's a kind of a, a classical liberal tradition, which uh, is very powerfully expressed, say, in uh, Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, uh, you know, wrote to serfdom, a more, you know, in, in very important popular work, but the classical liberalism uh, uh, in which the value of uh, liberty is fundamental. I, I don't think it's helpful to think of this as libertarianism in some, you know, overlay. It's, you know, classical liberalism. Value of liberty is fundamental. And there's the perception that there is, or the, and the, the claim that there's a, a fundamental tension between emphasizing the value of liberty and uh, putting any weight on the value of equality. And, you know, this is if uh, um, Friedman says in Capitalism and Freedom, and I think of that as, you know, another great text of classical liberalism, Friedman says, well, you can be a liberal or you can be an egalitarian. You cannot be both. That's pretty close to a quotation. And I think it's on page 195 of the edition that I have of Capitalism and Freedom. But if anybody's interested, I can find it for you. So that's that's one kind of view. And then. You know, again, stylizing some, uh, what they're thinking is, well, there are these egalitarians and maybe, you know, they're thinking of Marx as a, you know, as an egalitarian. Um, uh, people give according to their ability and receive according to their needs and, uh, critique of exploitation. And, uh, so you can be an egalitarian or you can be a classical liberal, but you can't be both. Now, of course, it's true as a practical matter that when you look at the evolution of social democracy and social democratic welfare states over the course of the 20th century, um, the practice is to try to be both. And, um, and you know, critics of those political economies from the classical liberal position are always saying, well, they're about to, the concern about equality is about to swallow up the commitment to liberty. And that's what, what Hayek says in, in, in Road to Serfdom. He worries about that. And then critics from the left say, you know, the commitment to equality is somehow, you know, unstable because you still have a, basically a, pro, you know, a private property regime and et cetera. So Rawls comes along, and what Rawls says is that what he's aiming to do in his theory of justice, and this is a pretty close to a quote, is to achieve what he calls a reconciliation between liberty and equality. That is to produce a political philosophy that uh, is not founded on the idea that you've got a choice between these fundamental political values, but that there's a way of accommodating both of them in a coherent set of political philosophical principles. And 
I don't think, and you know, if somebody says other people did this before, I, you know, John Stuart Mill sort of did it, but in a utilitarian framework. I mean, there's John Stuart Mill, who is the author of uh, On Liberty and also a self-described socialist. Um, so Mill did, but again, in a, in, it's the middle of the 19th century and it's in a utilitarian framework. So Rawls, uh, that's a way to think about what he was, uh, aspiring to do. And the, um, commitment to the value of equality comes out in a whole bunch of different ways in his view, including the ways he thinks about the ways that he thinks about democracy and the importance of fair political equality as part of his first principle of justice, his idea of fair equality of opportunity, that people who are equally able and equally talented should have equal chances, not just legal equality of opportunity, uh, but the substantive equality of opportunity and in his difference principle that inequalities are only justified if they mac- work to the maximum benefit of the least advantage, not the middle class, by the way, but the least advantage, meaning roughly people who are in the bottom quintile of the income distribution. And the commitment to liberty is there as well. His first principle has uh, a principle of equal basic liberties has priority in the system. So, um, and the, one of the ways that he, uh, puts this when he says that he's aiming to achieve a reconciliation of uh, liberty and equality. Uh, he he has an idea that he calls the uh, the worth of liberty, and the idea is you've got your liberties; they're protected as a matter of law, some basic liberties. Uh, but how much are the liberties? What's the value of the liberties to you? Well, that kind of depends on what you can do with them. Not exclusively, but to some, it depends on what you can do with them. At first approximation, what you can do with your liberties depends on the income and wealth that you've got. Uh, you know, the spirit becomes flesh. You can do stuff with the liberties that you've got. So then he says, so if you th- if you think that the worth of liberty, not just having the liberty, but the worth of liberty is a function, in fact, yeah, a monotone increasing function of your the wealth and income that you've got at your disposal. Then suppose you start there. Then you say, okay, you got these, he has these two principles of justice. Everybody's entitled to equal basic liberties. And then part of his second principle, the difference principle, says inequalities have to work to the maximum benefit of the least advantaged. So imagine that you got both those principles satisfied. Well, what that means is if you've maximized the for the least advantaged, then what you've done is not only maximize the income expectation, you've maximized the worth of liberty to the least advantaged. And that's what Rawls says is what he calls the end of social justice. The end of social justice is to maximize the worth uh, to the least advantaged of, as he puts it, the equal scheme of liberties shared by all. Um, I, 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 that's a long-winded answer to your yeah, I've question. I've got a couple but, of questions. But go uh, ahead. Yeah, please. Uh, okay. So one of these is the simple-minded observation that in order to expand the ability of the least advantaged to uh, realize the po- 
potentiality of liberty, you have to take my property. I, I'm a successful person. You have to tax me. You have to, under threat of coercion, confiscate my wealth. Yeah. Uh, how is that not an infringement upon my liberty? And and where do you get off doing that? I mean, what is the <laughs> what is the justification for Great. the infringement upon my prerogatives on behalf of this project? Yeah. The other well, question is why the least advantage? Why is the least advantage normatively trumping uh, everything here? But I want you to address the first question yeah. first. Well, we'll, we'll get, they're both great uh, questions, and we'll uh, um, take them in turn. So, uh, the on the first question is, uh, 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 you know, why isn't the uh, the kind of tax transfer scheme. I mean, that's how Rawls is thinking about it. You have a tax transfer scheme that uh, uh, enacts the difference principle. And by the way, uh, you talked earlier about the enthusiasm of people in economics. They were very interested in this. And Nick Stern, Sir Nicholas Stern of yeah. the Stern Report, uh, the Stern Review Climate. Um, yeah wrote a paper in 1975 trying to figure out what the tax rates would need to be in order to satisfy the difference principle. And one of the things that, uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get around to, I'm not evading your question. I'm okay. giving an excessively thorough answer uh, to your very good question, but it is a relevant point. So, so, but Rawls' second principle has an opportunity part and a kind of an outcomes part. The opportunity part, as I mentioned, is this idea of fair equality of opportunity that people who uh, who are equally able and equally motivated should have equal chances and not be have differential chances in virtue of irrelevant facts like the social class that they're born into or racial differences or gender differences. Okay. Um, and uh, the idea, uh, this was a principle that uh, the, that fair equality of opportunity principle uh, would require in order to satisfy it, it would require a wide dispersion of property and also a heavy, significant investment in education and training in human capital, um, so to speak. Uh, so... Uh, and, and what Stern pointed out was that what the tax transfer rates would need to be in order to meet the requirements of the difference principle depended in part on how uh, successful you were in meeting the opportunity principle at reducing the skew in the distribution of skill and thus in reducing the skew in the distribution of market income. And the more you reduce the distribution in the, the more you reduce the skew in the distribution of skill, thus reduce the skew in the distribution of market income, the lower the uh, difference principle tax rates uh, had to be. I mean, I think it's sort of intuitive, but he worked out the details. Let, let me see if I can translate yeah. this to, to layman's. I think, yeah, there are, I think there are two spheres in which the egalitarian project can be pursued on Stern's analysis. One of them is at 
the point where people acquire their human capital and their earnings potential. The other is at the point where they realize their earnings potential. Correct. You can equalize the distribution of skill, and that means you'd have to do less uh, of redistribution of income. And there's going to be a trade-off between those things, and the economist equations can tell you, you yeah. know, just right. where that margin is realized. Thank you. I, I don't know if that was in layman's terms, Glenn. It did have the advantage of being shorter than mine. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's like a, a model of earnings in which you ask how much, if you have unequal earnings, how much of that is due to une- inequalities in human capital and how much of it is due to labor market discrimination, say, or something. Let like me just that. make so, an observation here about liberty, though. Um, we still have to talk about why is it the least advantage that we're concerned. Yeah. But, but if, if you uh, play out this idea that uh, Nick Stern uh, suggests, yeah. and you think carefully about the acquisition of skill, you realize that some of that work gets done in the sphere of informal social life within the family. Uh, it's, to, it's, e- to equalize yeah. access to the yeah. acquisition of skills yeah. Seriously, seriously. Yeah. Means equalizing the experiences that youngsters have in their most formative years, which takes place in this private sphere yeah. of family association. Now, that seems to me to be an infringement upon liberty. The, yeah. the well-educated and prosperous yeah. parents can't have a special school for their kids and yeah. can't give their kids every benefit of, uh, you know, of, of the human capital that they could transfer within the family, uh, lest we end up with wide disparity in the preparation of people for earning incomes, which is uh, an egalitarian. So I don't know what Ross might have to say about that, but I wonder what you have to say about the conflict between the liberty of association and family life on the one hand and the imperative of giving people an equal opportunity to realize their human potential on the other. Um, I, I think I, I probably have kind of this, and we're going to get to the liberty, to the, to the infringement, the other infringement, the original infringement of liberty point that you made in a second. This is, this is all kind of warm up to that. Uh, uh, I think the, the hope, and maybe it's a pious hope anyway, but it's at least an old hope is that you can, uh, if, if the point of a system of fair equality of opportunity is that um, birth is not fate, you know, the genesis is not destiny, that where you start out doesn't fix where you end up, and that's an, an important idea, then that's a rationale for uh, uh, investing a lot in uh, education and training. Uh, and that's the hope is that you can get that kind of, while preserving, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 virtues, the beauty of parents reading to their children, et cetera, that you can nevertheless do that in a way that's consistent with a system of strong equality of opportunity if you're serious about investing in. Schools as you know, Horace Mann's uh, great equalizer. Now uh, we know uh, Horace Mann was not entirely right about education being the great equalizer, but uh, 
we also know that um, uh, uh, th- uh, that the seriousness of investing in that the investments in education and training that would be required as well as in the dispersion of property, but the investments in education and training that would be required to equal, to get some kind of equality of chances. Uh, you know, they're, they haven't really been made very seriously um, in this, in this country, maybe in other places. Yes, more, but, but they haven't been made seriously, but let's go back to, um, your, so, so the, the simple answer to the, the, the simple, and I don't say that this is a, comp- I emphasize simple, the short answer to your question about why isn't this a fundamental infringement of liberty is that Rawls accepts what is, you know, essentially the constitutional consensus in the United States after 1937, which is the date of an, ex- you know, the, Supreme Court decision, West Coast Hotel v. Parish, which basically constitutionalizes the New Deal and overturns the earlier 20th century Lochner era in which market liberties had a kind of constitutional prominence and arguably preeminence. And the idea is that uh, there's a fundamental difference. It's also an, a kind of Brandeisian idea that there's a fundamental difference between the liberties that are associated with democracy, say freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedoms associated with political participation, uh, religious liberty. There's a fundamental difference between those liberties and the economic liberties, that is the liberties associated with market interactions, and that the Standards for regulating the latter, that is the market liberties, are uh, much looser than the standards for regulating uh, the former. That is the fundamental liberties, uh, religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of association, liberties associated with political participation, integrity of the person. So the, the market liberties, that is the liberties associated with ownership of property and exchanging on the terms that you judge to be appropriate, or don't have the same kind of uh, prominence in the liberty firmament uh, that uh, uh, that the democratic and uh, and uh, religious liberties have. So that so the, now there's a further question, which is what accounts for the difference, and we can talk about that. But but uh, here here's the the. Um, the, the way Rawls is thinking about this is that what his first principle protects is not, as he would put it, uh, liberty as such. That is, the, it's not a uniform, high-level protection of equally high-level protection uh, provided for uh, all. Bless, excuse me. Bless you. Uh, provided for all. Uh, <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Uh, not a uniform high level of protection provided for all choices. Uh, it's there are certain what he calls basic or fundamental liberties and the, the ones that I mentioned before. So you can't regulate religious liberty in order to improve the circumstances of the least advantage. You can't regulate Democratic, you can't say no voting rights for the rich because yeah. what we want to do, right? But 
market liberties are a different matter, not the same position in the firmament. That's the idea. That's an assertion or a, the, a deduction? Um, it's uh, defended by, uh, as to paraphrase John Stuart Mill, cons- considerations designed to, you know, bring assent, um, the mind, to bring the mind to assent. No, it's a, it's a deduction in the informal sense. That is, there's an argument for what differentiates the fundamental liberties from the uh, market uh, liberties. And it has to do with the human capacities, the, as Rawls puts it, the moral powers that are involved in uh, um, the fundamental liberties of, say, political liberty or religious liberty as distinct from uh, what human interests are served by uh, the, uh, what I'm referring to generically as the market uh, liberty. So in the case, for example, of uh, liberties associated with democracy, political participation, uh, there are a few different fundamental interests that they serve. But one of them is that there is this basic, again, to use Rawls's term, moral power, uh, which is um, the capacity for a sense of justice. So if you go to Martin Luther King's last speech, that Mason Temple in Memphis, in support yeah, of the, the mountaintop. I've been to the mountaintop. I've been to the mountain. I may not get there with you, but we as a people. We, we as a people will get, get to the promised land. We'll get to the promised land. Uh, and Sanitation he says in that, workers strike in Memphis, Tennessee. That's right. That's right. April 3rd, maybe oh, 1964. Fourth. Yeah. I think fourth. Fourth. 1968. 1968. Um, and Mason Temple, not Masonic Temple, Mason Temple. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, in that speech, there's uh a a place where he says, you know, I think somewhere I've heard it said that the um, greatness of American democracy is the right to protest for right. It's the right to protest for right. He doesn't say the greatness of American democracy is that you can go and use your rights to participate to get more stuff. He says it's, you know, he's, Right, the yeah, great moralist. Uh, yeah, yeah, he says it's the right to protest for right. And that's also how Rawls, I think, is thinking about political liberty. The reason that there's something so fundamental about it is that it is the way that you bring your sense of justice, your conception of what fair terms of cooperation are. You bring those to bear as an equal on the rules that we are all supposed to be uh, that we're all supposed to be living by. Um in the case of uh, religious liberty, um, the, the way Rawls is thinking, I think fundamentally is thinking about religious liberty is if you have, you know, a, a set of religious convictions, those convictions come labeled, so to speak, by the religious ideas that you have as your most fundamental convictions, the ones that define what your obligations are, what you are most fundamentally required to do. And so they are, um, they direct you to conduct that you uh, can't 
compromise on. So there's a story, there is a, a, a deduction, I mean, in, in a very, you know, small d, loose sense, a defense, an argument in defense of this distinction within the class of liberties understood as the absence of, if you understand liberty as the absence of constraints on your choices, the Rawls's idea is that what his first principle protects is not that, but protects these fundamental, more concrete uh, liberties. And for these reasons, having to do with the capacities of the self that are involved in the, uh, the use of those liberties. I, I don't expect that to be persuasive, but there's just to say that there's a, a, a deep story to tell about w- what the basis of the difference is. Now, uh, most uh, politicians aim their appeal to the middle class when they talk about uh, yeah. improving the well-being of the people. Uh, but Rawls's touchstone for uh, the goals of uh, social justice are the circumstances of the least advantaged. Yeah. Uh, why? Um, part of the reason... Um, th- there were um, there's a more intuitive way to think about it and a more kind of doctrinal way to think about it. Let me start with the, what I think is the more intuitive way to think about it and come to the uh, well, actually, let me do it in reverse order because there's a part of Rawls's view that we haven't talked about at all, which is his idea, his social contract idea. So uh, Rawls didn't start out as a social contract theorist. In fact, he really started out. I mean, his, his uh, when he was in college, uh, he was uh, going to become a minister. Uh, and he, his undergraduate thesis was called Faith, Sin, and Community. And it was a pretty, you know, orthodox um, piece of anti-Pelagian, you know, moral theology. And I, when I say anti-Pelagian, I mean, you know, very explicitly. Uh, um, and... Uh, and and not and very it was actually anti-contractual. He had identified the contract view with the Hobbesian contract view, which he thought was objectionably individualistic and egoistic. Um, uh, and um, and the there's a deep continuity between his criticisms, his embrace of ideas about the sin part of faith, sin, and community. The, and the anti-Pelagianism with his later criticisms of the idea of a desert, uh, you know, uh, on, as a basis of uh, making claims. Uh, so, um, so he starts out there and then he moves uh, and, but he's sort of a rule utilitarian in the early 1950s. And at least on one story about this, and I, I, uh, think there's probably a good bit to this. Uh, there's a philosopher, David Reedy, who's writing an intellectual biography of Rawls and, and, and says that it was really reading Rousseau in the mid-1950s that persuaded Rawls that there was a form of social contract theory that he could, you know, found 
uh, congenial. So, so his idea is, you know, you've got these principles of justice, the pr- requirement of equal basic liberties, and then this principle about uh, with the opportunity principle, and then the maximizing for the least advantages. Those are the two principles of justice. And uh, his official argument for those principles is um, uh, that they are the principles that would be agreed to in what he calls the original position, that is, in, in, a, in a kind of ex-ante agreement about how we are going to uh, live together. And uh, um, the way he thinks about this original compact is uh, that when you make it, there are a whole bunch of features of yourself. In fact, everything that distinguishes you from other equal moral persons that goes behind what he calls the veil of ignorance. Uh, That when you are deciding on these principles of justice that you and everybody else is going to live by, you don't, you make the decision as if you didn't know your class situation, your race, your gender, or your values, your religious values, your conception of the good, your religious convictions, your moral convictions, all of that is uh, um, uh, uh, you're assumed not to know, which is, which is a way of trying to give expression to the idea that those differentiators are not relevant to the choice that you're making, which is this choice of basic principles of justice. You, as a way to put it is you are modeling the irrelevance of those by assuming ignorance. So you're, you're trying to model that with this, the, that antecedent idea of the irrelevance of those factors by assuming the ignorance of them on the parties who are making the choice. And then Rawls famously thought that in that original position, when you don't know where you're going to land, uh, that there are good reasons in that situation for being really uh, essentially conservative or risk averse, for worrying most about what might happen if you end up in the worst situation. Uh, Not in the average situation, but in the worst situation. Excuse me, though, that seems to inject an empirical psychological judgment into what had heretofore been a very pristine Kantian-like logical exercise. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know what my risk preference are going to be if you don't know what, (laughs) if I don't know my gender, my age, my intelligence, my physical, et cetera, et cetera, my my risk preference? Yeah. So, so, um, once again, uh, Great uh, question. Thanks for asking it. Um, The idea is that there are a few conditions. um, Putting aside special risk preferences, you don't know what your attitude toward risk is. That's one of the things you don't know. Why aren't you sneaking it in? Okay, so the idea is not knowing your attitudes or answers, There are a few features of this situation where you're making this choice that make it appropriate to adopt this 
conservative attitude toward risk. And those features are analogous to the circumstances in which decision theorists would say, use the maxi-min rule. What are those circumstances? And Rawls points to three conditions. First of all, you don't really have any basis for making a judgment about the probabilities of ending up in different situations. So this is not a, a, a judgment under uncertainty. It's a judgment under ignorance and ignorance of a particularly extreme kind. That's one piece of it. The second is that the choice that you're facing uh, could lead to um, results that you think are intolerable, um, and you want to avoid those. So that's the second. And then the third condition, which is the one that's in some ways most it's important, complicated, obscure, is that... Um, there's a kind of, you know, there's like a, a, a violation of the Archimedean condition, so to speak. That is, there's a kind of, um, uh, there's a level, there's a kind of discontinuity. There's a level that you think it's really important to get to, and you don't care that, you care much less about how you do above that level than you do about getting to that level. Okay. So, those are the conditions in which it, the, the maximum rule is recommended. And Rawls says, well, there are conditions that are kind of like that in this original position behind the veil of ignorance. And for that reason, there's a particular salience to um, uh, uh, the least advantaged position and wanting to make sure that the least advantaged position is as advantaged as it could be. That's the kind of formal uh argument and it isn't supposed to depend on risk on uh knowledge about risk preferences it's supposed to depend on those conditions okay now uh here's a different um a, a way to think about it though i think the original position argument is an effort to kind of model or give sort of structure to this um, uh, this, this more, I don't know, intuitive argument, which is here you are, uh, you're, you're trying to figure out what principles of justice your society should live by. And let's assume for the sake of argument that you're in uh, what you know Tocqueville described as a democratic society, meaning not it's not a society with a political democracy, though it might have that. It's basically a society of equals, where people are recognize one another as being of equal importance. Okay. Now, um, what you you look around and you see some people are pretty well off, and some people are pretty badly off. And now you ask, how can you justify those disparities in life chances in the only lives that we got? How can you justify those disparities in life chances consistent with the idea that 
everyone is of equal importance, is owed equal concern and equal respect. How can you justify those? Um, and the way Rawls is then thinking about this is that that concern is particularly salient if you're in the, you know, in the least advantaged position, which again, he's thinking of as like the bottom quintile of the income distribution or people who are living at less, less than half the median. There's no precise, but it's not the, the, the person, but it's a position that yeah. same people. Okay. And, uh, and so the, the strongest answer that you've got to that worry, how could we justify these disparities in income, in wealth, in power, and advantage? How could we justify those to each person living in a society of equals? Well, the pressure for justification arguably is greatest in, for, the, for people who are in the least uh, advantaged position. And then go back to the thing that I was saying earlier. Suppose you say to the people in the least advantaged position, what you really care about, what's, what's, what, you, what you can claim from the rest of us is not only that you have liberties protected like everybody else, but that you can really do something with those liberties, that they're worth something. And now Rawl says, suppose, in, in effect, he never says quite this, but in effect what he says is, if you can say to people who are in the least advantaged position that what we've done is maximize the worth of your liberties. Your liberties are, because if inequality were less, your liberties would be worth less. And if inequalities were greater, your liberties would be worth less. If we've actually achieved that, inequalities that work to the maximum benefit of least advantage, then if there were less, your liberties are worth less. If there were greater, your liberties would be worth less. Uh, that's the strongest rationale that you could give to people who are in the most, as it were, vulnerable position from the point of view of justifying their life situation, uh, that's the strongest rationale that you could give for saying you are being respected as an, you are being treated as an equal with equal concern and equal respect. But, but Josh, yeah. su- suppose the people who are worst off, I, I imagine where I might find them. I'd yeah. find them at a drug rehab center. I'd find them uh, on, in a homeless shelter. I'd find them in a prison. Uh, I'd find them at a food bank, but that might be because they haven't looked for a job in three years. Yeah. Uh, they might be poorly off because of the consequences of choices that they've made in their lives. Right. Why am I allowing uh, the tail to wag the dog here? The, the the fellow with wealth may have accumulated it through concerted effort over decades. Yeah. It may be the fruit of uh, the genius of his or her imagination. Uh, they may have earned it. So there is no, so far, yeah. consideration of deservingness in, in this calculation about whose concerns and whose welfare is determining my conception of justice. And that doesn't feel right to me. Yes. So, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's almost as if I'm having a conversation with Glenn Lowry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yes, choices and dessert. And as I said before, Rawls is, you know, st- uh, to say the least, kind of standoffish about uh, dessert. Um, um, and uh, for a bunch of reasons, but he's, it's, dessert is not the a category that's important any more than, by the way, any more than it's important for Nozick. Nozick rejects the idea of dessert. He thinks the idea of entitlement is important. But, you know, in his famous, you know, example of Will Chamberlain getting yeah. all the, you know, he doesn't think Will Chamberlain deserves all the money. Yeah. He thinks he's entitled to it. Yeah. Um, now, uh, but the First of all, let's let's go back to people who are, you know, in the least advantaged position. Let's suppose, put aside uh, the, and, and not out of indifference to, but just to make your life a little bit harder. Put aside people who are in the, the in the situations that you describe. Take somebody who's working full time. They're working at the minimum wage or close to the minimum wage. They're making yeah. 10 bucks an hour. Yeah. They get on the goddamn bus every morning and dr- go for an hour and a half to get to their job. They're living in a, a neighborhood in which there are all kinds of environmental threats, air quality and water yeah. quality, et cetera, et cetera. The schools suck. Yeah. Think of those people as people who are in the least advantaged position, people who, you know, get up every day and go to work. And and I'm not dismissing the other issue. I think it's incredibly important that I don't want to be dismissive and or to just grant that, you know, who cares about the, I'm not in the slightest. We can come back to that, but some other time, because I, uh, we have, we're all out of time. Yeah, I got to uh, go. But, yeah, I got to teach in a little while. But th- but think about the people in the least advantaged position that way. And now uh, they're, you know, as people would say, you know, it's like people who are playing by the rules. Problem is they're playing by the rules, but the rules suck. And by the way, the rules could be really different than what they are. And who's making the rules? This isn't God making the rules. This is not nature making the rules. This isn't, you know, Russians making the rules, you know, to pick. This is like us. We are responsible for the rules and we could make different rules. And now the idea is people in that situation ask, why are the rules what they, why are the rules what they are? Um, We're supposed to be equals here. And again, I'm not, nothing that I've said is intended to be a kind of knockdown point. It's just designed to put pressure, a little bit of uh, pressure on here. The rules could be different. And if the rules were different, I would be better off. It's true, probably, that if the rules were different, I don't mean you in particular, but the Mm -hmm. person who's in this very advantaged position, Let's say, let's just stipulate they would be less well off. Less well off than they are. Not less well off than me. They're still going to be doing way better than me. Yeah. 
but they're less well off than they are. And then you say, still, what you're doing is confiscating. This goes back to your earlier point, and you're confiscating some of mine to get. And I say, what? tell me for a second, what do you mean by confiscation? Do you mean taking from you what you're entitled to? Well, I'm afraid that's question begging at this point, because that's what we're arguing about is what you're entitled to. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, I know we got to go. Yeah. There are Democratic uh, parties, uh, left parties all throughout the, the rich uh, industrial states. Any one of them have a political practice that you think has been significantly influenced by Rawls's intellectual contribution? There are a whole bunch. It's, it's, it's interesting. Rawls has been less influential on public political discourse in the United States than in, I mean, Italy, for example, Rawls was very influential in uh, Italy, to some extent in Germany, and more in uh, a bunch of places in Western Europe. But, it, you know, it, it, there were, uh, but very little um, impact in the United States, although he did get, you know, the kind of presidential medal of freedom from Bill Clinton, but that's an, you know, that. Yeah. So yes. Uh, that, I, that, did it, not, that did not change the rules. It, it didn't change the rules and it didn't lead, you know, and Bill Clinton could have been, you know, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Okay. It was great to talk to you, Glenn. Uh, and and you and and I want to talk the next time we do this about Michael Sandel's uh, tyranny of merit yeah. because I'm I'm on the chapter now. My wife and I are reading it to each other, uh-huh. uh, and, and I'm on the chapter where uh, Hayek and and Rawls are both accused of uh, you know uh, in effect meritocratic hubris of buying into yeah. you know the rhetoric of rising and uh, whatnot and and I, you know he's got egalitarian liberalism and he's got uh, market liberalism and yeah. you know there's not all that much difference between the two of them and I know that's got to mm-hmm. drive you crazy <laughs> it does I mean I think it's a com- it's completely wrong about Rawls's view and just let me end with one story you know in okay. the, a number of people have cited this passage in the introduction to uh, Hayek's uh, one of the volumes of Hayek's uh, Law, liberty. Law, legislation, and liberty. Law, legislation, liberty. Great uh, uh, three-volume set in which he says he basically, you know, Rawls has these views in theory of justice, and he basically agrees with Rawls. And, uh, and lots of people say, <laughs> hey, Hayek, Rawls, they're basically the same. So Russ Harden, uh, the late uh, political theorist who was teaching at Chicago and then at NYU, once told me a story about that because he, he knew Hayek. And he said to Hayek, I'm really surprised that you said that. I mean, you Rawls has these egalitarian views. You And Hayek, this is by Russ's testimony, uh, he said, you know, when you get to be a certain age, uh, you say things like that without having done the homework that he apparently had never read. He never read a theory of justice. hadn't read it. And then when he learned what actually was in it, he moved away from that position. So anyway, uh, we'll continue uh, soon, I hope. Thanks very much, Josh. Thank you. Uh, Good to be with you. Signing off then. Okay. Bye-bye.